0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Jake Smith, and welcome to another Conversation in the Cloud. I'm joined today by founder and CEO of Zero Down, Alan Jinn, and CTO of Zero Down, Keith Fukuhara. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Thanks for having us.
1: It's our pleasure.
0: Well, You know,
1: guys, in
0: full disclosure, I've sat on the board of your company and we've known each other now for 25 years, but I do want our listeners to not just know about our relationship. I want our listeners to understand what is zero down software? Where did it come from? And what are your backgrounds? And Keith, why don't you get us started? And then Alan, I'd like you to answer to finish us off.
1: As far as the background goes, it's pretty diverse. Everything from professional services to software development and even EDP auditing. So some of the foundations, some of the thought of Zero Down Software comes from a combination of all those. Also spent some time with two storage-based companies. One was Storage Tech out of Denver, Colorado, and the other Hitachi Data Systems. So within the background is pulling together a lot of the concepts for resiliency at the storage level, as well as with storage tech, we did a lot of tape backup solutions and a virtual disk type of product within the company. So between the storage, the compute, the software development, EDP auditing, and professional services, we've kind of pulled together a lot of the common deficiencies we've seen in the business continuity space or the high availability space. And that's where the concepts that we've built into our software kind of comes from.
0: So, Alan, as CEO, you've had a very interesting background and you have a very interesting role in the company. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So, Jake, you know that we started, as Keith said, as EDP auditors. What happened along the auditing way while we were working for Coopers & Library, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, we did some really interesting projects. One of them was we would do white hat breaches. Our clients would ask us whether or not their systems were secure we'd come in and we would break into them, leave a pass phrase someplace just to demonstrate we were here. And then we write up a report. And in that report, we would also tell them how to shore it up. So security and auditing to the transactions were pretty foremost. Then, as you know, we did a really interesting stint at Wang Labs, taking them out of bankruptcy and there we met Jeff Edwards who was running sales for disaster recovery and business continuity because our job there was to migrate 10,000 VS clients to Novell networks, which we had a particular expertise in. And Jeff came up with this really interesting idea, which was you know, for disaster recovery, we always have to go from one like to another like. So if it was a mainframe to another mainframe, if it was Wang VS, it was to another Wang VS machine. Going from Wang VS to NetWare was something that hadn't been tried before. And so he came up with this term, virtual business continuity. And business continuity you know, is comprised of security and also availability. So this whole idea has carried us through most of our career, as Keith noted. Along the way, as you know this is not just a technical journey. It's more like an odyssey. You meet a lot of interesting people along the way who are trying to solve technical problems that hardware doesn't solve. And you get into the systems integration of technologies. And at AT&T, we had a really interesting liaison who you know, Carlo Malono, who was our AT&T liaison to Bell Labs. He was our assigned futurist. And we started having really interesting conversations like this, Except we had them in bars. And we were sitting in a bar in Waikiki, and he was lamenting over how many outages we've experienced with our customers that we couldn't stop. And along the way, he came up with this idea and says to us, Why is it that we audit customers to the transaction, but we fail over to whatever our last good backup was, which could be weeks, even months? And our RPOs and RTOs, we've never been able to make them. And so, that was 1995. So, our story really starts in 1995. And from that point on, we started seeking out people in technology that were having similar issues, trying to solve the same problem with a different tool. And that's how we met you, actually. And so, as Keith said... Storage became the fundamental foundation for solving RTO and RPO, which is recovery time objective and recovery point objective. And we learned very early with you, actually, Jake, that the more data we could pack on a disk, the longer our recovery times were becoming because of the size of the network that the customer was subscribed to and the amount of disk and data we were having to push through that pipe. Downtime was actually getting longer and longer. And so with you and a handful of other technologists, we decided there was really only one way to solve this dilemma, and that was to use software and make it more efficient and to apply a couple of interesting algorithms we had never thought about, which was our multi-syncing and multicasting technologies that we all whiteboarded. And that was, instead of having a master slave fail over, let's go to multiple locations and solve the latency problem. So I became the CEO because I was always the programmer, project manager of most of these ad hoc projects. So it just turned out that I'm more the orchestrator than anything, but it's a band full of a lot of people who are trying to solve the same problem and you're aware of that.
0: Yeah, so for our listeners, because you know, you and I could go into the deep dark hole of how many people have tried to solve this problem. What is really great about the solution that you've developed with HPE? I think it's really interesting can you talk a little bit about the ultra high availability solution?
2: Mm-hmm. We actually met HPE many, 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 many years ago at the very foundation of starting the company. In fact, we were working with the Disaster Recovery Business Continuity Services Organization. As you know, they participated on our tab. And I also knew Mark Hurd at HPE. We worked at at t together. And so he had a really interesting interest in what we were doing Because everybody was trying to solve high availability with just hardware. And we had proposed we needed to have multiple locations. And Keith came up with this idea very early on about brownouts. In fact, it was interesting. He was explaining this to Wall Street about what a brownout is and how electrical grids really can take down data centers. And of course, our Wall Street colleagues didn't believe it. They said in New York, we're never going to have a brownout. I think we all had a chuckle over that lately. And what ended up happening over time with our relationship with HPE is we got back to HPE through the Microsoft Azure Stack project that you know we worked on. And that was that HPE was trying to also migrate customers from diverse platforms, it could be from a data center to a Microsoft Azure stack, or to Amazon, or to Google, or to Yahoo. They had more at stake by solving customer problems, which were, what are you trying to solve and how are you trying to solve it? As opposed to having just one club in their bag. And what they liked about our technology is we're agnostic. We can run on any prem on any server. We load no agents. This was a design spec that Keith had come up with early on with his team. We didn't want to take any resources away from servers. We didn't want to have to sit on storage. We didn't want to sit on the single point of failure, so to speak. And HPE recognized that before anybody else did. They liked the idea of hybrid multi-cloud. They like the idea of protecting their client with a safety net as they're migrating to clouds and they like the idea that we could and they could with us deliver a solution that brings their customers to having an outage without the customers seeing it and the way we joked about it and I know you participated in the joke was building complex systems is like launching a jet with passengers on it and we had to make a timetable to get it off the ground but we don't have landing gear. We'll put the landing gear on while we're in flight and we'll just hope that we can land safely. (laughs) Let's keep all the passengers distracted with drinks, cocktails, and movies, right? And that's a lot like how we build complex systems today. We set a timetable, often we don't make that timetable and we launch. And HPE loves the fact that we can help them with services as well by delivering a software solution that runs on all of their platforms.
0: So you build a solution that runs on all their platforms, not an easy task. Talk about the relationship with Intel and why you've chosen to optimize zero down on Intel architecture.
2: That's a great question. You know, part of that story started with you because you were at Intel and we had some really interesting discussions about... You know, is the hardware leading or is the software leading? And one of the very first technical advisory board meetings that we had, and I know you were there, I was wiping down the whiteboard, you know, out of full disclosure, we would have these really interesting brainstorming conversations and then I would capture the good ideas and then I would clean the board. And one of the things that was sitting at the top of the board was, we believe technology should serve mankind. Yet so many of us are enslaved by a modern technology. It's over my monitor as well. And I think Carlo wrote that. It might've been you that wrote it. So I'll give you credit if it was you. But we are so spoiled with social media, fake news, games, the era of smart device, cars and homes and spam and robo calls. And yet the industry doesn't really mind because it's all based on consumption. And this yin and yang of the consumption model stems from what we know from the early telco days that you and I have shared these ideas, and that was having a toll model. So payphones are in bars, ATMs are in bars. Interesting that AT&T owned both the ATMs and the payphones, so they owned the endpoints and they owned the road that it ran on. And so our relationship with Intel sprang from the Intel Inside brand and the logo And we had said, in our minds, Intel is more of a software company than a hardware company. And we appreciated that about Intel because Intel is trying to solve customer problems as opposed to trying to manage the toll roads, if that makes sense. And that was always our goal. We shared it with Intel. As you know, we were introduced to Intel by Dick Kremlick in 2002 from NEAA Partners. We became an Intel portfolio company very early worked with all the greats, of course, Paul Ottolini and Mike Pfister, Steve Dalton. We've done work with and for Intel, which demonstrates that Intel is more a software company than a hardware company, the way I think outsiders look at it. And we've enjoyed that relationship. The final part to answer that question is, our belief is we're going to see a new hardware, a new hybrid model evolve You know, going into the future. And that hybrid model is going to be both closed-source as we're accustomed to and open-source. And we believe by creating this hybrid, we're eventually gonna deliver a world without downtime, which is our company's slogan. And we feel Intel is the way to get there.
0: That's pretty powerful, Alan. I mean, we'd like to think that our collaboration is certainly a big part of that journey. Keith, can you talk about the technology itself? Talk a little bit about it and how you've developed it and developed the architecture to deliver a zero down environment.
1: So a lot of it starts to come back from, again, the backgrounds that Alan was talking about. We kind of joke around and say, this is our Forrest Gump travels through all the different companies, projects, and some of the things that we've witnessed as far as continuity goes, right? So part of it started early on when I was just out of college. We used to have a disaster recovery business continuity plan, and it was what we call a three-legged stool. Business continuity is basically a three-legged stool, including people, process, and resources. So back in the day, our resources were places like Comdisco or SunGuard that was basically offering a cold site that we can transfer our workloads to and then bring it online. And then they're our recovery center for a period of time people in process are. we need people to run some type of process so that we can fail over to the next site. So that's kind of the concepts of where we started. And one of the things that I found early on was actually the earthquake of 1989 in the San Francisco Bay Area. The administrators kind of took off on us to go check on their families. And me being kind of young out of school, I didn't have a family yet. So when they took off, me and another intern, we weren't able to start the recovery processes because we didn't have the administrator right so at that point in business continuity plan basically it failed because the people portion of that stool was not available for us for the recovery process to start the other situation that we kind of found ourselves in was that when we're doing edp audits basically we would audit for a business continuity plan it's very simple back in the days where it was just do they have a business continuity plan how effective is it when do they test it And one of the things that kind of caught our attention was basically business continuity plans in general and recovery procedures in general are time-based, right? They were based on when let's say a tape backup was made, whether it was incremental or a full backup, whether it was a block storage, if it was a split mirror image or a snapshot imaging type of scenario, it was always based on time. But when we did our audits, our EDP audits, It was basically done at a transactional level. We would actually go into the databases, look at certain transactions to make sure that they were correct. So there was a disconnect between disaster recovery plans that were time-based and what we would audit for from a financial institution as far as being transaction-based. So when we started to look at this paradigm of ultra high availability, one of the concepts that we lived on was this active role. Right. And even a little bit beyond cluster, because clustering would often require specialized development practices as you made an application or you have to recompile for a cluster environment. And the cluster environment is tightly coupled together so that if you had any type of outage within the cluster, then your system would still be down. So part of what we've done in the architecture of our software was to make it very portable. And with the advent of containers, we basically created microservices around our software so that we could actually deploy our software within the various environments, whether they be physical, virtual, or cloud-based, and we're able to have our ultra-availability software running in different platforms very quickly. The other nice thing is that because we are active active, what we do is we're not focused on a read-write or an IO-based replication. We're based on the transaction. So as we've mentioned earlier about RPO, the recovery point objective and the recovery time objectives, we really focused on solving that issue in recovery. How do we create the lowest RPO and RTO? And instead of focusing on when an IO event occurs, we focused on the transaction. And why this is important is because when you look at current technologies, you'll hear terms like crash consistent or application consistent recovery. And crash consistent just basically means that if one site were to fail and I go to my second site, the application will come up and it'll be running. it's not necessarily that all the data is gonna be transferred, or maybe I have to back out some data. And the same thing with application consistency is basically as I fail over, the application comes up, I don't have to roll back any transactions out of my database per se, because the methods that they use are consistent so that the application is intact and I don't have to do anything, I can just start to process. But in that mix, we have something what we call data in flight. And data in flight is basically, I've started a transaction, I had to back it out, or when I recovered, that transaction was basically backed out automatically during the recovery process. So there's you know, a few transactions, could be minutes, could be hours, that I'm missing out of that failover process. So what we did is we developed an active, active architecture that basically says, let's take it from a transaction level, push that down to the many data centers that I may have protected, right? And an active, active architecture. So that if something happens in one location or one site, then automatically I've got the state of the transaction still being processed in the secondary site. And when I switch all my resources to that secondary site, what ends up happening is that I have the state of the transaction. I can continue on with that transaction within the application and still be able to have my data with an RTO of zero and an RPO of zero, right? Because the application is processing where I might've been left off from one location to transfer to the second location. So that's the basis of what Zero Down software has built. So,
0: Alan, can you talk a little bit about some of the customers and some of the customer deployments and the benefits that they've seen once deploying Zero Down software?
2: Yeah. So interestingly enough, and you don't have to be careful about this because you know where our customers come from, We had a really interesting use case where we were visiting a large government agency. Let's leave it at that. I know you're aware of the details. But during the meeting, when the CTO was coming out to meet with us, and this was a referral from another government agency, they said, we're having a problem. We're having a massive disaster. And I jokingly said, well, that's great. We're here. Maybe we can help you. And it turned out that they had been hit by a worm. A virus, and they were going backwards to use their tape backup, and it turned out that the tape was broken. And as you know, the way that these tape machines work, if it senses there's tape running through it, it doesn't realize it's broken. And it just happened to be that the way it was spinning in the backup, it thought it was live. In the recovery, it knew it didn't exist. And so they were actually going back not weeks, but months to their last backup to find one that actually was good and tape was brittle it happens and because of budget constraints it's the last thing you think of buying new anything is tape you're buying the faster modem or the bigger storage device so as you and I know there's a hierarchy of what actually gets purchased versus what doesn't and it's usually the ones that don't get upgraded or the ones that fail on you so failures come from everywhere And what ended up happening is in the conversation, we realized that this was a life and death situation for some of our people in the field. And so we were asked, could we have found a way to have that recovery point just before they were aware of the worm hitting them? Because they knew when it hit. They knew the date and the time. And Keith correctly said, yeah, it's because of our journaling technology we can take your last good backup before that event happened, and then we can recover you fast forward like a time machine by replaying all of the transactions directly out of our journal. This was very early on in our design phase. And so this use case became interesting because although this was you know, roughly 20 years ago, I think it was 18 years ago that this occurred, when you're looking at these breaches that we're experiencing today, and business continuity you know, has availability and it has security you often have to think about when can we go back to a backup that was good before it's been breached and encrypted and taken over? And how do we take good transactions that would have been in flight or are missing that haven't been processed? And so we can use our journal to do that. We can use our journaling device to build you in a new deployment. You remember, and this is the other use case that we were talking about, is very early on, 2008, when we were At your IDF actually presenting, the week prior to that, we had Larry Ellison from Oracle talk about cloud, how difficult it was. You know, it was akin to the cockroach hotel. Once your data is in, you'll never get your data out. And that was very true at the time. If you put your data in, I'll just pick Amazon as an example. We're all familiar with them. It's very hard to get your data out of Amazon and take that data and put it into Oracle or put it into Microsoft. Azure. There's a lot of jumping through hoops to do that. But if you're focusing and we're focusing at the application and we're not focusing at all on the storage and how the storage blocks are being written or where they're being written to, we have all your data and we have all your data wherever you want your data. So it allows the customer to have complete control of their data. They can keep all their data on-prem if they want for continuity issues, security issues, and yet they can be processing, expanding, using elasticity and artificial intelligence and in whatever cloud provider they want, or they could do bake-offs and run it in Amazon against Azure, against Google, and see how those tools all work and have the ability to elasticize or to bring it back. And decide where they really want to have it. This is not necessarily one of the use cases our CSP partners want to discuss, but it's something that customers really like when they're thinking about moving to the cloud because it's always been an all or nothing proposition in the past. Now we say just protect the applications that you want. You don't have to use us to protect your entire data center like the old days.
0: So where can our listeners find out more information about Zero Down? ZeroDownSoftware.com is the first place that you want to find us.
2: You can find us in Amazon and Azure's marketplaces. You can find us in Oracle's marketplace. We're going to be announcing very soon. We're going to be in Canonical's marketplace as well. So we're moving to that open source hybrid model that we believe customers want to be empowered to go to. So you can run us literally wherever you want to, but you can come straight to Zero Down Software first.
0: Now, this is my favorite part of every session, and this is no different because we obviously have a long relationship. And for our listeners, I'm always curious as to what Keith thinks about in the future. And so, Alan, I'll give you a chance to answer it. But Keith, where does the future go from where we are today in your mind?
1: Well, if we believe on the Bezos and Elon Musks of the world, I guess it's going to go to space. But it's interesting that they're putting a cloud computing platform in space. I got a chuckle out of that a few weeks ago when they were talking about that. What we're seeing in technology today is we're seeing workloads being able to run anywhere and everywhere, right? I think Docker and the whole container industry really enabled developers to quickly deploy their software into different types of platforms. And I think we're going to see a big jump in that type of usage moving forward. We're no longer going to be stuck in, as Alan says, that one platform. If I deployed in Amazon, I'm stuck in Amazon. If you're seeing what's happening in the container world, especially with technologies like Kubernetes and things like that, I can orchestrate my containers to be deployed into whatever platform I need to. And the big question now becomes data. What type of data platform am I storing the back end? And one of the things that we've been working with is a lot of the open source storage platforms, and it's really opened up the capability for us to have the actual data that sits at rest, securely deployed into different platforms simultaneously, right? So I can have an encrypted data platform, let's say like a Mongo or a even Cassandra and things like that, deploying to different platforms. And it's really opened up the capabilities for us to have, again, our data anywhere and everywhere. What I see even coming up in the distant future is things are really... With cloud computing, if you think about it, we're kind of centralizing our back-end workloads, right? It's a timeshare operation, basically, if you think about the cloud. And I think we're kind of retracting back to that. And especially with what we're seeing in the security issues with all the ransomware attacks, et cetera, being able to manage your storage in the clouds is also one of the things that is very interesting and how it's going to be protected with all the new compliance and auditing capabilities there. And so that's kind of that second area that Zero Downs is really looking at is how are the technologies moving forward? especially at the storage level in the cloud it's going to be able to help solve a lot of these ransomware attacks, the security breach attacks. The capabilities are starting to really come together. I think there's a bright future as far as some of these services that are going out there between Azure, AWS, and Oracle clouds, even GCP, right? So that's kind of you a know, broad stroke of what I've been seeing and where I think the industry is going. But again, we'll have to see as time tells.
0: Interesting thoughts there, Keith. Alan, what are your thoughts on the future?
2: I think it's a couple of things. We have to change the business model and we also have to change the way we approach technology. So, when I speak to customers about hybrid, I'm not just speaking to them about hybrid technology, I'm thinking also a hybrid business model. So, open source and typical closed source solutions. I believe enterprises are always going to be reliant on having a closed source solution, meaning something to do with Microsoft as an example, that's always going to be there or Oracle or SAP. These are going to be the dominant players that customers are going to feel reliant. They're going to feel happy. As you know, when we first got started in the seventies and eighties, nobody ever got fired you know, by buying IBM. That used to be a slogan The same thing goes with Microsoft and Oracle and SAP as an example. That's going to hold true. But I think that the open source community, when you and I started with OpenStack in, I think, 2010, back in the day, we saw software as being a preeminent way for customers not only to define how they're going to solve their problems, but to be able to take control over where technology now can take them. It's not going to be the hardware vendors telling them this is what you're going to get and this is what, you know, a cost per core is, you know, those kinds of things are being commoditized. And I think a really interesting fact that I think you shared with me years ago was back in 1995, we were looking at mainframes, you remember, and we were talking about, you know, how many flops, teraflops does a mainframe have? And it was like two. Around 2000, you know, smartphones started having about two teraflops of power as well. And today, you know, an iPhone or an Android phone has about five. We have far exceeded the capability in a small device that we would have to use an entire floor to cool and run power through for a mainframe. So we're condensing the size and the footprint. But the more important thing is we're also starting to condense you know, the time frame of innovation, a very interesting idea that we had, and I know you were part of it, is when we were first talking about open source and you were explaining to me, this is where it's all going to go. I believe it was the differences with open source. You know, I will give you my tool or my hammer and, you know, you could do whatever you want to do with it. And I sure hope you find a way to use it safely and teach other people how to use it and share it. You know, Share your tools with your neighbors, as an example, and let's improve on it. Yet, if you haven't figured out how to use it, just come over and I'll show you. In the closed source model, it's like, here, let me sell you a tool and I don't care if you ever use it. I've just made my money. That's it. So, there's a combination between both of them that makes sense for us as users so that we're not enslaved by technology. But Jake, we had this program for high school kids in 2008 that you helped me put together. And it was an internship program, and we had never considered doing this. And it came to us from one of our Stanford developers. He knew a math teacher who said, I've got a whole bunch of smart kids in my class that in the summer, I don't want them to get bored and get in trouble. Can you guys help us with this idea? So we took a module, and I won't disclose what that module is, but you're aware of it, that we had already solved. And I'm talking about guys with MBAs you know, from Stanford and Berkeley. And we knew what the answer was. So why don't we give these kids something to work on during the summer? And we gave them a whole summer to work on it and code and develop. And we gave them a little bit of guidance. And sure enough, all four of these kids came back with a very different solution from each other, which surprised us. And it didn't look like our solution either. It actually improved on the solution that I had these really smart, Guys, build. And that was an eye opener for us because we started seeing this capability that we can expose these tools and teach these kids how to code or how to program the same way we can teach them math or teach them grammar. You know, so those whole reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, is one of the proudest moments that I think you and I shared with, you know, what are we bringing? We're bringing innovation to kids earlier, and I suspect that what's going to happen along the lines of what Keith just said about building, you know, cloud services and space, we're going to start having kids thinking very differently with tools that are made available to them than the way we currently think today. I think it's going to fall on their shoulders to help us get where we need to get. You know, you know, Brad. He had just shared with me his 10-year-old son just coded his first application and sent the application over to me to take a look at. It's amazing what a kid who starts at nine years old, going into summer, coming out at 10, what he's starting to build today. So I think the industry is going to change based on our ability to provide tools freely to the next generation.
0: Well, that's outstanding. Well, I want to thank my dear friends and guests, Alan Jinn, founder and CEO of Zero Down, and Keith Fukuhara, CTO of Zero Down. It's been a pleasure to have you guys here. I wish you nothing but success. My name is Jake Smith. This has been another episode of Conversations in the Cloud. And so wherever our listeners may be in the world, we wish you a good morning, good afternoon, and good night.